When I was growing up many times, I heard my grandmother and sometimes my mother say this. You mark my words, they're going to get their comeuppance. What they meant was that somebody who had gotten away with something wrong was going to reap what they had sown sooner or later. That phrase, you mark my words, was a statement that said a lot. Sometimes it was even said as a warning to me. Words are so important. Proverbs 25 and 11 says a word fitly spoken and in due season is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The meaning simply put is that well-chosen words suited to the occasion, whether words of advice or rebuke, can have a valuable effect on the listening ear. They can convict, heal, restore. And so in Genesis, we read that God spoke. He said, and out of nothing came light. He said, and out of nothing came creation. In Hebrews, it says that same God long ago at many times and in many ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And today we will look at Psalm 51. It's important as we study any book of the Bible to look first at what, at, at why it was written, to whom it was written, the situation, and then we, how do we apply it. In order to understand how and why that psalm was written and what were the words used that caused David to write this penitential psalm, we need to do a little background work. Words. If you read the scriptures that I sent out last week, you read a lot of words, and thank you for doing that. I hope it helped you get an overview of the psalm we're looking at. The words we read reveal what was going on in David's life, what was in his mind, what he said to various people, and then the words God spoke to him through the prophet Nathan. We'll start reading the psalm in a few moments, but first I want to try and explain what I think have been some glaring misrepresentations of the story. You can put a marker in Psalm 51, but then turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and we're not going to read all of these verses, but I will highlight them and, and you can follow along. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2, it says that when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of his house. Well, we don't know what was happening there, whether he had been asleep and woke up, maybe. But here he is, king, commander-in-chief, the most significant man in the land. Anything could be his. No one else could wield such power. All he had to do was command. However, instead of going to battle with his men, he took a vacation. And here he is, walking around on his roof, the roof of the palace, that high building in the land, highest building in the land. And notice he is on the roof. He is on the roof, from where he could look down. As I was preparing this, I thought of Daniel, and what a contrast. What did he do three times a day? He prayed. What if David had done that? So he's on the roof looking down, and he sees a woman bathing, washing herself. And Hollywood and painters and popular songs would mislead us into thinking she was a provocative temptress. But the details of this story really matter. Our view of Bathsheba does matter. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But her bath was not strictly hygienic. It was a ceremonial washing ritual, still observed by Orthodox Jews today. She was living according to the law, which is why I had you read from Leviticus, which describes the law, the Mosaic law. Monthly after her period, or state of uncleanness, she was to wash to return to a state of spiritual readiness to create life. I did some searching to find out just what this entailed, and here's an article I read by Beth Wenger. It's titled The Mikvah, or The Ritual Bath. 
The mikveh is a ritual bath designed for the Jewish rite of purification. The mikveh is not merely a pool of water. It must be composed of stationary, not flowing waters and must contain a certain percentage of water derived from a natural source, such as a lake, an ocean, or rain. Both men and women have used the mikveh for root ritual purification, but it has always held special significance for Jewish women. A mikveh must be built into the ground or built as an essential part of the building. Portable receptacles such as bathtubs, whirlpools can never function as mikvahs. The mikveh must contain a minimum of 200 gallons of rainwater that was gathered and siphoned into the mikveh pool in accordance with a highly specific set of regulations. Jewish law prescribes that women cleanse themselves and then immerse themselves in the waters of the mikveh following their menstrual period or after childbirth in order to become ritually pure. So the scripture does not mention where she was, most likely in a courtyard. Now artists have done paintings of her and of course Hollywood have painted her as a temptress, an exhibitionist, but nowhere in the scripture do we see this description. The Bible is clear in pointing out women who were sinful or considered evil. But yet in this story, there's no mention of complicity on Bathsheba's part. Next, we get a description of the names of Bathsheba's relatives. These are important things to note in Scripture. Her father, Eliam, was one of David's mighty, mighty men. In fact, there's a list of these mighty men given in chapter 23. And in that list is also found Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. The story continues that David sent messengers and took her. Did you hear that? Did you read that? He took her. Did she know what she was being summoned for? Probably not. But you can't imagine staring at these messengers and saying, no, I can't go right now, or I don't feel like it, or I'm not too, I'm not too uh, comfortable with it. He didn't say no. In her book, All of the Women of the Bible, Edith Dean explains, according to the laws, Bathsheba could not have resisted had she desired for women in ancient times were completely subject to the king's will. And you remember when we studied Esther way back, how fearfully she approached King Ahasuerus? So we've heard that it's said, it was said that David had an affair. But the evidence is clear, an affair takes two, and Bathsheba had no say. And how we interpret biblical narratives affects how we interpret events around us. And we've heard that David was a man after God's own heart, he was a mighty warrior, yet that didn't stop him from abusing his power by demanding Bathsheba submit to him, nor did it stop him from killing her husband. He abused the power God had given him. On Sunday, Utah, in his message, said, the heinous, the heinous thing about sin is we take the God-given abilities and our capacity, and rather than reflecting what God is like to the world, we take these things and wield them against God. The corruption of the best is the worst. And we see David's corruption. Instead of seeing Bathsheba and treating her with dignity because she was made in the image of God, he takes her and uses her for his own lust. So now Bathsheba is pregnant and David knows what the baby, that the baby is his. Because she had just finished her ritual bathing, so no way could this be Uriah's baby. His secret is going to come out unless unless he can come up with a plan. And so he sends for Uriah, and after small talk about the war, he suggests to Uriah, in verse 8 here, go down to your house, wash your feet. Did you get that? Go down to your house, 
down from the palace and wash your feet. Now that term is a euphemism for go sleep with your wife because the custom was to wash your feet before you went to bed. David is hoping that by sending Uriah down, if he slept with Bathsheba, it would mask the fact that David was the father of her baby. He even sent along a gift. Verse 8. How magnanimous. Cover up. But Uriah was an honorable man with more integrity than David at this point and would not go and see his wife. And he probably longed to see her and desired her. But in verse 11, and listen as I read this. In verse 11, he says, the ark, and the, Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So then... When this didn't work, David tries to get him drunk and does this to see if it'll work. That when he gets drunk, he'll go down and sleep with his wife. But that fails. And then a diabolical plan to have Uriah put in the front line of the battle so he will be killed. How did all this affect the servants in the palace? How did it affect Joab when he receives the order? How often are people in today's society forced to carry out orders and requests by those in power over them? How helpless and hopeless, even in politics, when moral men and women are forced to go along with corruption, powerless to stop it. Try, and you'll lose your job and your reputation and chances of another job. It happens all the time. Well, the plan is successful. Uriah, who had been David's loyal man, one who had David's back, who supported him, was killed in battle. And after Bathsheba mourns, she's brought into the palace, and the king is going to look after his widow. Hmm. Cover up. And the last verses of chapter 11 says that she became his wife, and she bore him a son. Well, that was true. It was his son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did Bathsheba know that David had set this plan up to kill Uriah? We're not told. She was probably breathing easier because she was in a very awkward spot. So the months passed, the baby is born, and then just as David had sent a message to Joab, the Lord sends a messenger to David in the person of Nathan. And if you've read the story, you know how Nathan begins. He compares Bathsheba in his story to a little ewe lamb, precious to her owner, an interesting image a meek little lamb. That's how Nathan is describing Bathsheba. Then he describes the selfishness of the rich man, how he took what was so precious to the poor man. And then David's anger is aroused, and he makes this just judgment, an honorable judgment. He says, this man deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then with words that are timely and fitting, Nathan says in the spirit, you are that man, and proceeds to declare what God had laid on him to deliver. Listen as I read from verse 7 to 15. Nathan said to David, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. 
I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, and I gave you your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went down to his house. Nathan had to say these things, because God is no respecter of persons, and his word is true. And what he requires of his servants is true. There must be repentance for sin. In all of chapter 12, in that story, not once is Bathsheba called to account. Not once is she mentioned in terms of being complicit in this. In fact, now she'll face the death of this little baby boy. And we read that David fasted and prayed in the hopes that God would be gracious and let the child live. But David knew in his heart what was needed and what was going to happen. And so when the baby didn't recover from its illness, he heard that the baby had died. It says, David went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And of course, that would have meant sacrifice. Now we see what has happened to David. He's brought to a sense of how guilty he is and what he's capable of. He's no longer running from his guilt. So we're going to turn to Psalm 51 and we'll read it. We'll start, we'll go verse by verse, and uh, take it a verse or two at a time. In verse 1, we read, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. His plea for forgiveness According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David's pleading with God, using the words that God had declared about himself in Exodus. In Exodus 34, 6-7, God had declared this to Moses. The Lord declares himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David is mentioning it twice. Wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He's admitting he knows what he's done. His transgressions, his iniquity. He had dethroned God and made himself the center of his universe. And he saw his twistedness. God had exposed his sin. And you know, we never know what we're capable of given the opportunity. So often we'll say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because looking back in our life, we can see times when 
we could have gone into such wrong ways. David says, my sin is ever before me. He was sick of his sin. Do you ever get sick of the repetitiveness of your sin? The sin that so easily entangles the things that we repeat and we know they're wrong. Well, David describes his condition. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He realizes that God is the one ultimately whom he had sinned against. Of course, Bathsheba and Uriah, those who were forced to do his bidding, the servants, Joab, he, he had sinned against them. But ultimately, it was the Lord against whom he had turned. He'd hurt others. He'd killed Uriah. He'd, he'd violated the law of God. And he says, I did it in your sight. You saw it. I often think of the situation today where our young people and children are not taught the simple truth that there is a God to answer to, and he sees all we do. Remember the song we used to sing and teach the kids? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And then the other verse would be, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Impressing upon our kids that we had to be so so careful to please God and, and to walk with him. And the verse ended in that little song, For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little feet, where you go. <laughs> and so we need to be teaching our children from an early age the gospel, the gospel of forgiveness, and that God is going to judge this world, but he's made a way for us to have our sins taken away. Now David confesses in that verse 4, you're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's no argument I have or can give. You witness what I've done. I'm guilty. I deserve any punishment. Now notice he doesn't blame Bathsheba or make her share in the guilt. True, true repentance doesn't look for reasons. It doesn't look for someone to blame. How often do we look for a scapegoat? We look for excuses for our behavior. Instead of owning up and saying, my sin is ever before me. Well, here David wants to submit to God's righteous judgment. And then in verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's then declaring that this sin all of us have been born with right from conception. He said, I've inherited this sinful nature. From the moment Adam sinned and disobeyed and the world was thrown into this sinful mess, We've all been made to share in the reality of sin. And then in verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He sees that God wants not merely outward virtue, but inward purity. He doesn't want a pretense. He wants our heart and our soul and our mind to be pure. I think of the time that God said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And surely here David sees how far he is from satisfying God's demand. The degree that we reflect and resemble God depends a lot on the depths and heights and quality of our interaction with him. How much time do we spend with him in his word, in prayer? Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Purge me with hyssop. He's referring to the plant or the herb that was used by the Hebrews in their sacred purifications and sprinklings. 
the idea of the psalmist here evidently is not that the, the mere sprinkling with hyssop would make him clean, but he prays for that cleansing of which the sprinkling with hyssop was an emblem. He's saying, wash me, a real spiritual purification. Save me from the evils which my sin has created and nourish in me and nourished in me. And I shall be whiter than snow. And he believes God can do that. He's expressing faith. Please do this. And verse 8 and 9, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you've broken rejoice and hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Let me hear joy and gladness. I need to hear from you, Lord. No one else can lift this sadness. I need to hear. Let me hear joy. Spurgeon says, No voice can revive his dead joys, but that which quickeneth the dead. God's voice speaking peace is the sweetest music an ear can hear. Unquote. End quote. David goes on. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Unconfessed sin can lead to physical issues. It can play havoc with our nerves. It even can cause depression. And David wants to get this out so he can have it dealt with. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, he's already said, blot out my transgressions. And by the way, transgressions are, uh, the definition is they're an act that goes against a law or a code of conduct. He's already said, blot out my transgressions in that first verse. But now he repeats the prayer and says, blot out all my iniquities. And of course, iniquity is sin at its worst. Iniquity is premeditated. It's continuing and it's escalating. And when we flirt with sin, we fall for the lie that we can control it. And sometimes sin that seems small and harmless at first can take control before we know it. Well, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's not asking for the old heart to be cleaned up. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson, in explaining this verse, says that the word for create in this verse is the same word used in Genesis, the word bara, for creating something new. David's asking for this. And isn't that what happens when one is born again? They have new life, a new heart. He says, renew my feeble spirit. And I thought of that verse in Isaiah. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall mount up with wings as eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. How often have we been tired? Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And then we go and we talk to the Lord, and we wait on him, and our strength is renewed and we're revived. Verse 11 Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Don't turn me away. Don't take your spirit like you did, Saul. I deserve to be cast off, Lord. Don't cast me off as worthless. Let me stay with you. Your spirit is my wisdom and my strength. And verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy he had lost. Where once he had joy, now he desires it. The joy and upholding go together. That sense of well-being because God is in control and you're in a right relationship with him. And we can lose our joy. Situations arise and break our hearts. And we have to plead with God. But sometimes that joy can only come after repentance and pardon. None but joy, God can give that joy. The joy of our salvation. These two things go together. 
joy and the sense that God's upholding us. Also the joy of knowing what God did when he sent his son to save us and the fact that he called us to himself and so that all things in our life are planned. He has our life. He has our life in his hands. So these 12 verses are David's confession and plea, and then the last seven are how he anticipates what will happen when he's restored. He anticipates his gratitude for forgiveness, how he's going to display it. In verse 13, he says, I'll teach transgressors your, transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He'll be a teacher to others, and he'll teach them how, as he, how he as a sinner experienced God's mercy and grace. He'll show them how he had fallen but pleaded for mercy and forgiveness and how faithful God was to restore him. He's not writing this psalm to, as Sinclair Ferguson says, get it off his chest. He wants to instruct sinners in the way, and he'll tell of God's mercy. There's nothing more touching than a testimony of, testimony of one who's experienced the grace of God. How often have we read the psalms and they've lifted us have pointed us to the majesty and grace and mercy of our God. How good to hear a testimony that is current. Not what happened when God saved you years ago, and that's fine, but what did he do this week? How is he helping you through the current crisis? How do you see him working in your life to change you, to make you more like Jesus? And verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, if there wasn't the title of this psalm telling us what the psalm was about, we wouldn't know what it really meant until we got to verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. He was guilty of the blood of Uriah. He's calling a spade a spade. He's saying, I deserve death. It was a capital offense. But here he calls out, O God, O God of my salvation, deliver me and I will sing of your righteousness. I will never fail to proclaim your faithfulness in granting full pardon to all who repent. Verses 15 to 19. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Open my lips, he said, so that they'll speak of your nature, that you have no delight in outward forms of religious observance. Now David knew that an animal couldn't take his sins away. He knew it was a picture, an emblem a picture of the one who was going to come one day and pay that price so that we could have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Christ died so that we'd, we'd no longer be under law but grace. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, there's a wonderful, two, two wonderful verses to remind us that you and I have been delivered. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So now that means I'm no longer under the sovereignty of Satan and darkness and ignorance, but now I have the truth which is found in Jesus. I'm under the sovereignty of God, and I can fight against sin. God has said, Be holy, for I'm holy. 
And we think, oh, I couldn't do that. But yes, we can. Because by accepting Christ, who has become our righteousness, God sees us as righteous. But he also has given us his Holy Spirit. He's delivered us from that domain of darkness, so we do have the power to fight against sin. And not just once, now and again. But you know, we're living in, under the sovereignty of God. We can daily fight this. It means walking with God. It, morning, it means morning by morning, turning our thoughts and, and prayers Godward and asking God to help us. It means calling out in those times of temptation. And so we can enjoy the presence of our wonderful God each and every day. And it's because of what Jesus did. David knew what the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote. This old hymn says, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain. But Christ the heavenly lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Yes, the sacrifices of God are a contrite heart, free from being obstinate and rebellious. Romans 12 and 1 says it best. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what do we come away with from this psalm? David was repenting, he was lamenting, he was pleading for forgiveness. And it shows us the path to forgiveness. Sin had robbed him of so much. Did he ever get that joy back? Well, I'm just going to read to you Psalm 32. Because he was a forgiven man. And he, he says it in verse 31. In Psalm, sorry, Psalm 31. Or was it 32? No. Sorry, it's 32. I got it right here. He was a blessed man. He was a happy man again. Listen to what he says. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and surround me with shouts of deliverance. It's a wonderful psalm. Because God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David was a forgiven man. We can be forgiven. God's promises are true. 